Well, we're in week two of a three-week series titled The People Who Missed Christmas, all of whom were found here in chapter two. And what we mean by missing Christmas is not missing December 25th with the times of family and presents and food and other things that we all enjoy at this time of the year and are all good things to enjoy, but missing the message that Jesus Christ's birth speaks to all humanity. And that message is this. Christmas is acknowledging Christ's lordship over our lives. The key word there is acknowledging. For you see, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, whether we acknowledge it or not. But whether we bow down to him or not determines our ultimate relationship with him. Because a time is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we can do so as his redeemed people or we can do so as his enemies. Well, last week, Keith reminded us that Herod tried to destroy Christmas when the, mess, when the question that the Magi posed offended him. And that was, who's sovereign, Herod or King Jesus? Next week, Keith will look at the people of Nazareth. They disparaged the message of Christmas. They thought it didn't have any value or importance in their lives. But this week, I want to look at Jerusalem and the religious leaders. And we'll find that essentially they were just indifferent to the message. They just didn't care. Well, last week, Keith taught us, and I've edited the text this morning, to remind us that the question that the Magi asked was, who is the born king of the Jews, as opposed to Herod, who was an appointed or a puppet king? And see, both Herod and and the religious leaders at the time understood that by asking that question, they were asking, where's the Messiah born? Uh, Herod says that here in verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 3, when he says, uh, yeah, verse 2. No, I'm really messed up this morning. One moment, please. Yeah, verse 4. Where is the Christ to be born? Christ is the Messiah. And the religious leaders answered appropriately in verses 6 and 7. Verses 6, they, they, they followed uh, the writings of Micah, the prophet Micah, and they said he's to be born in Bethlehem. And this is what they say. From you, Bethlehem, shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. See, they, they summarized what Micah was saying. It is not all an exact quote. When they say they'll shepherd my people Israel, he was saying this, and you can see that I've printed it for you in the bottom of your bulletin. The one coming was much more than ruler. He was shepherd. But what does a shepherd do? The rest of Micah. And the Messiah shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. See, the one that was coming, the one that came, the Lord, is also the shepherd. And the shepherd gives peace and security to the flock. But isn't it interesting that the single biggest event that the Jewish people were waiting for, the coming of the Messiah, 
Not a single person is recorded other than the Magi, heathen, probably knew little about the Jewish religion other than they knew to search for the Christ. Other than that, the people didn't go to Jerusalem to look. The religious leaders who quoted the prophet never went to the Bethlehem to look. They were indifferent. How could they be so different about the arrival of the shepherd? Well, we'll take that up under three headings this morning, and they're printed for you in the bulletin. Christmas calls us to recognize that we follow shepherds, number one. Number two, Christmas calls us to reject false shepherds. And number three, Christmas calls us to embrace the good shepherd. Now, it will first help us to understand what's indifference. If we looked at a dictionary definition, it's a lack of interest, a lack of concern, or a lack of sympathy over something. Essentially, somebody has knowledge, but that knowledge doesn't motivate them or move them to any kind of action. Just don't care for whatever reason. I read an interesting article by a clinical psychologist who heads up a uh, Catholic counseling center. And he put forth three reasons why people can be indifferent in our day. And I thought it was interesting. The first is what he called overstimulation. Meaning, we're just overwhelmed with information. If we, if we try to look at the news, news comes from our phones, news comes on the internet, news comes on the radio, news comes from all these sources, and it's all competing information, and we can just be overwhelmed with it and just shut down to it and become indifferent to it. We might become numb to the repair that's needed in a relationship. You know, maybe so much water has just gone under the bridge So much has happened. So many things have been said. We just kind of shut off and say, you know what? I'm just going to be indifferent to this relationship because I just can't handle it. That's indifference. The other one's powerlessness. You know, the problem is too big. What can I do about it? You know, we may think about this. There's any number of social issues going on in our world today. And we might look at it and say, I can do so little It's not going to change much. And so I just kind of turn off and become indifferent to it. The third is narcissism. That's where ego and and pride and selfishness take over. And I really don't care about other people's needs because it's all about me and what I want. I do things that gratify me and I do it at the expense of others. As I was I was processing an event in my life the last couple of weeks, and I realized I experienced, I exhibited some narcissistic tendencies. And that was this. I bought a new car. Now, work, my job requires me to buy a new one every three, or four, three to four years, so I have to go do it. <clears throat> but I realized, you know, I am the worst customer a car dealer could ever have. First of all, I research everything. I'm researched. I know before I go in there, I know what the features are. I know what the trim packages are. I know what the costs are. I know where where the prices are. I know everything. And so I'm there to pounce on the salesman when he gets it wrong. Secondly, I'm a salesman myself. That's my profession. And so when I have can flip the tables and I hold the power of the purse, it's just too much for me. I went through three dealers. 
till I found the car that I wanted. I know what car I want. I know what trim package I want. I know exactly what price I'll pay for it. And I've already gotten the coupons online, which you never tell the dealer till you beat them down to the price that you actually want. And then you drop the coupons on them and they have to give it to you. It's all a scheme. But I realize, you know what? I'm indifferent to the needs of the dealership. I don't care if they make money or not. Not my problem. I'm kind of indifferent to the salesman because he's there to serve me. That's all narcissism. Very effective in buying a car, but total narcissism in our day. Well, number one, Christmas calls us to recognize that we do follow false shepherds. For our purposes, a shepherd is whomever or whatever we might perceive will give us security and peace. Remember, a shepherd comes, according to Micah, to give security and peace. And it's whatever or whomever in our lives we might turn to for that security and that peace. The Jewish people of Matthew chapter 2 lived under oppression from several fronts. A born king of the line of David hadn't reigned on the throne for 600 years. They had been a puppet state, back and forth, being bounced back and forth, the various world empires conquering and reconquering them. And now they were under the Roman Empire's rule. And they were subject to their law, their taxation structure, both of which the Jews opposed vehemently. And then they were under the, the rule and the, and the oppression of King Herod. A puppet of Rome, yes, but he was allowed autonomy as long as he suppressed the uprisings and the rebellions against Rome, which he did with, with a lot of brutality. And there were many of these uprisings in their day. Along with that, he had the power to tax. And he laid his own heavy taxes on the people. Their relationship with him was a real mixed bag of of like and hate. He certainly kept the peace in a brutal fashion. But his taxes were so heavy that it put put such a heavy burden on the people. But yet on the other side, he, he spent lavishly to buy their favor. He constructed, um, uh, he constructed um, uh, all kinds of centers of entertainment, uh, theaters and, and stadiums where they could be entertained. His biggest work was the temple itself. That's how he curried favor with the Jews and tried to buy their love and their, their submission. Here's a, this picture gives you an example. It puts Solomon's temple on the left, And Herod's temple on the right. Now, when you read the Old Testament, you hear about Solomon's temple. It was lavish. Gold everywhere. But you'll notice it's far less than half the size of Herod's great temple. He spent lavishly. He started this temple in about 20 B.C. or so. And it didn't get finished till a few years before 70 A.D. when it was destroyed. That was a long time to build. He spent lavishly, but he also spent lavishly on the public welfare. In hard economic times, he was known to actually have melted down objects within the palace and sell the gold to Egypt to buy food and bring it back and distribute it to the poor. He at times would actually give back tax money. Do you hear that, Washington, D.C.? Gave back the people's tax money to help them in difficult economic times. And he would import clothing and distribute it to them in the cold. 
He didn't do that out of his goodwill. He was buying their submission and their favor. But that's why it was such a mixed bag with, with Herod and the Jews of like and hate. <clears throat> now, the average Jew was also under the thumb of the religious establishment. The chief priest noted, the chief priest noted in verse 4, the ones that Herod summoned to him were a group of, of people holding high positions. There would have been the high priest there, often a political appointee, instead of by heredity. There would have been the captain of the temple guard and other officials. But they held power in the city with Herod being their benefactor. They controlled all the religious services within the temple. They controlled the people's religious lives. Herod even gave them a measure of civil autonomy. The temple guard had his own army. They could enforce civil law and mete out punishment. And so the religious establishment held its power, its prestige, its wealth, all because of this guy that they really hated, but he fed their narcissism. The entire apparatus of worship oppressed the average Jew with non-biblical rules and another layer of taxation. And Jesus would have harsh words for these Pharisees and scribes. In Matthew chapter 23, he issued seven woes. And this is just part of that passage. You Pharisees, you scribes, you Sadducees, You tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, false shepherds. And then there was the news. Fake news is not a 21st century thing. These people were bombarded with news, real news, fake news, rumors. There was always political intrigue going on. Herod was all, as Keith brought out last week, was always offing somebody who got in his way. It didn't matter whether it was friends, family, or countrymen. There was always an uprising going on amongst the Jewish people as well. Rebels uh, rose up and fell all the time. Uh, uh, you know, they uh, called themselves messiahs. They were false messiahs. They promised peace. They promised liberation from Rome. And they came and they went and they came and they went. Hear this. The Jewish people lived under a system where the government taxed heavily, spent lavishly on buying the people's favor with social programs. Many of the religious leaders profited from the devotion of the people, and the powerful went to any length to retain power. Tell me the Bible does not speak to our contemporary culture. Now, in this drama of Matthew 2, Herod played a role of shepherd to the people that they accepted in some measure, though it cost them dearly. 
To the Jews and the religious establishment, he provided the security and peace. To the religious leaders, they acted like false shepherds to the people who thought if they just obeyed and just followed the prescribed trappings of religion, their souls would be okay. The shepherds of the first century gave the people every reason to be indifferent to the message of Christmas. Well, number two, Christmas calls us to reject these false shepherds. See, we need to call false shepherds what they are. They're really wolves. They're wolves that devour the sheep for their own ends. And the peace and security that any of these shepherds can offer is feeble and momentary at best. What does God have to say about wolves? I want to read a section of Ezekiel, chapter 34. I haven't put it up here. You can just listen. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Ezekiel. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the stray you have not brought back, the the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts. Since there was no shepherd because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed the sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand. And put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer will the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths. That they may not be food for them. Woe to the false shepherds. Elders, are you here this morning? Me included? Woe to us if we ever let ego and pride and power get in the way of feeding the sheep. Woe to the false shepherds, those TV preachers who milk the flock. Woe to them. The Lord God is against them. And we will answer for our being under shepherds of the great shepherd. But woe to any of us who holds any kind of place of power. In our employment, if if we're a manager or a boss, we, we hold power over our employees. Woe to us if we use that position to trample our employees and make us look good. Woe to you husbands, myself included, who use our God-given authority in the home to do anything less than feed and care for our families. Woe to you men who at any time treat a woman as an object 
We're being false shepherds and the Lord is against us. Woe to you young people in your friends group. If you use your friendship to manipulate others so that you get what you need, the Lord is against that. And we're false shepherds. Well, we must reject the wolves because God has rejected them. And they'll only lead us to the indifference of Matthew 2. See, in Matthew 2, the people were overwhelmed and powerless. And in their indifference, missed Christmas. The religious elite were keen to keep their places of power and comfort and prestige and wealth. And so in their narcissism, they missed Christmas. Now, separated by 2,000 years, it might be easy for us to look back and see that Herod and the religious leaders were wolves. But are we so blind to the wolves, the false shepherds that we might follow? To whom or to what do we run for peace and safety? And as we do that, we miss the message of Christmas. I'm going to suggest two tests that we could use to ferret out false shepherds in our lives in the form of two questions. The first is, what troubles me when it's threatened? This is what I mean. When the Magi arrived on the scene searching for the born king, Matthew 2 tells us that Herod and all Jerusalem were troubled. They were agitated. They they, they were stirred up. They were anxious. This news unsettled them to their core. And the Bible will use the same word later on in Matthew. When Jesus arrives in Jerusalem during the triumphal entry, when he rides in on a donkey as the king of kings, the people are praising him. They're, They're waving palm branches, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. And when he arrives in Jerusalem, the scripture says this, All of Jerusalem was troubled. They were stirred up. They were agitated. What does this mean for us? See, the news of the Magi had the potential to to upset the political and the religious order of things. It may not be the best, but it's what we got. It's what we've been living with, and we're indifferent to everything else, and we don't want it to be upset. Because in the established order, they found peace and security. So what troubles us? And I don't mean the cares of this life, the the normal cares of this life. We have concerns about work. We have concerns about getting our our homework done. We we have concerns about the political scene. They're, They're all valid concerns that we work through. But I'm not talking about those. I'm asking, what? really rocks our world when it's threatened or it's challenged. Because if it does, it could be a false shepherd for us. Here's some examples. We might find peace and security in our position at work. What happens when there's rumors of layoffs or rumors of mergers? It's right to be concerned. We can understand being anxious. I'm not saying we go through life without any problems. But if that really rocks us to the core, such that we will do anything to hold on to it, even walking on top of other people, probably a false shepherd. 
What about our political parties? If we're into politics, what happens when they lose? Are we just so bent out of shape that we're depressed for days afterwards? Or how about political dialogue with somebody who, heaven forbid, might have a different opinion than us or even be part of a different party? You know, when I grew up, there was one party that if you were part of that party, you obviously were not Christian. There was just no way possible. But today, there's no, no dialogue between people. If you're, if you're opposite of me in politics, I, I just want to destroy you. That's what we see on the news. We can't discuss and go back and forth. If we're so tied tightly to that, our politics that we'll walk all over other people and write them off, there's a wolf at our door. Our jobs, our families, even our families become gum this way. If in our families we're willing to be so consumed with them that we neglect developing other friendships, that we neglect fellowshipping with God's people, that we neglect being involved in our communities and our churches, when we neglect all of those things that we're called to do, even our families can be a wolf for us because we're finding peace and security in the wrong thing. Second question. What am I excessively passionate about? Highlight excessively. Passion is a good thing. Our our worship teams are are passionate about setting up the service and, and leading in a way that honors and glorifies God. Passion's a good thing. But what I mean about excessively passionate is if whatever I'm passionate about is attacked, or if somebody else just doesn't care about it, and I'm quick to just steamroll right over them for it, or just become so agitated and out of sorts that I'm cruel to them, or I disparage them, that could be a shepherd, a false shepherd in our lives. Again, the political process could be an example. But social causes could be an example. We should be involved in our culture, in our society. There are programs that that combat hunger. There there, There are groups that combat racism. There are those who combat abuse of all sorts. All of these are good, and we should, as God's people, be passionate about engaging our culture and trying to, trying to solve these issues in that way and bring God's light, his peace and security. We should be passionate about those things. But we can become so passionate that no other cause matters. Or if you're not as passionate as me, I'm going to steamroll right over you. Or if you challenge my cause... I'm just going to become unglued. When those things are taken out of balance, they they can be false shepherds for us. They could be places where we're looking to find security. Any of these, while good in and of themselves, can devour us. And we have to be careful to keep them in their proper places. Here's one of them. Some of you are going, yep, he went there. We had a couple of these. This is a picture of essential oils. And I'm going to make no claim 
about the benefit or placebo effect of essential oils, all right? I'm not here to do that. But there is passion out there about these things, ranging from it smells good in my house to it cures cancer, and if you're not using them, you are a heathen. Be careful that essential oils do not become our shepherd. Public service announcement. (laughs) Number three, more briefly. Christmas calls us to embrace the good shepherd. In the current adult discovery class, uh, uh, Resilient Faith, Robin Howarth has pointed out that we all live by a worldview, a set of rules and beliefs that govern how we live our lives. And what he's also pointed out is that when we accept a worldview and live by it, by default, we reject all other worldviews. It's the same for shepherds. God can never be second. He never shares his glory with another. And so if we're not choosing him as our good shepherd, we're by default rejecting him as we pursue the other shepherds. In the first century, Jews in Matthew were looking ahead to a promised Messiah that had not yet come. But we have the privilege of seeing that he did come. He did arrive on this earth. He did live a righteous life. He did speak, and we have it recorded in Scripture. He did suffer. He did die. He did rise again. These are historical facts that we can look back on with confidence. But what kind of shepherd did he come to be? Part of John 10. I came that my sheep may have life, And have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. That's peace. That's eternal security. Following Jesus as our shepherd does not mean that we are never troubled, that we're never stirred up, that we're never anxious. But it does mean that he will lead us through it. It does mean that he'll strengthen us. He'll give us a joy and a hope that's beyond our understanding. He'll give us this abundant life. How do we know? First, we have the testimony of Scripture. God wrote it for us in black and white. But then we also have the testimony of God's people. If you had the joy of being at the Thanksgiving luncheon a few weeks ago, you would have heard God's people, our people, our family, stand up one after another. God is good. I'm still struggling through this. But, oh, does he give me a sense of peace through it? I'm experiencing joy in the midst of it. Or I was faithful to him and he was faithful to me and we've come out the other side and I can see how he's used this for my good and his glory. That's not me, the preacher, saying that. That's you, the people. We need to hear our stories because God is living and active and the shepherd is moving in the lives of his people. If you're here with us for the first Sunday of the month, you'll hear members of our church community give testimony to the good shepherd. Sometimes it's, it's somebody who's dealt with a disease that they haven't beaten. But in the midst of it, they can declare, through my good shepherd, he's given me a peace that matters. He's given me a security that's eternal. That's eyewitness testimony to the truth 
That's why we need to be telling each other our stories. And while things while like finances, our jobs, political involvement, our families, our social causes, while they our grades, our sports teams, while they can all become false shepherds, you know what the amazing thing is about following the good shepherd? We can still enjoy all of those other things to their fullness because we've put them in their proper places as secondary to the great shepherd. The message of Christmas is that our sovereign Lord has come. He's arrived as the good shepherd who's procured for us a perfect peace and a eternal security if we only embrace him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the coming of the king. At this time of season when we... uh, when we we remember the babe in the manger, help us never to forget that that babe is the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who came to shepherd his people Israel. And that's us, Father. If there's anybody here, Father, who doesn't understand that, who, who has never really come to Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and ask him to be the shepherd and Lord of their life, would they do that now? If you don't understand What I'm talking about, come see me afterwards or turn to somebody next to you and ask. They'd love to share it with you. Father, would you be glorified in this place through your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.